0: The grass withers and the flowers fade, but the Word of our God shall stand forever. Let the Church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Some passages of Scripture are iconic. They hang like fine art in the galleries of our hearts. They are inscribed like a motto over the doorway of our minds. Today's gospel passage from John chapter 14 is one of those passages for me, and maybe it's one of those for you. As a pastor who regularly conducts funerals, today's gospel passage is one of the most commonly requested passages at Christian and, interestingly, non-Christian funeral services. Second only to the 23rd Psalm, read, of course, in the King James Version. In my Father's house there are many dwelling places, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. There is something profoundly hopeful about Jesus' assurance of a many-roomed home that he is preparing and the promise that he will lead us to this eternal house one day even the most irreligious soul craves an assurance that there will be something yet to be experienced after our death more life left to live somehow and so when given an, a list of appropriate passages to choose from following the death of their loved one both churched and unchurched folks have invariably picked this reading from John 14 And while those words are certainly familiar words to many of us here, well-worn words, certainly, memorable words, the words of the passage which are truly iconic for me come in verse 6. Jesus said to Thomas, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Those words... Well, church, those words hang on a gallery wall of my heart. As many of you know, I grew up in a Baptist church across town. And for nearly all of my growing up years, it was there that I learned the language and practices of Christian faith. There I was given a hunger and a love for the scriptures and there I had the opportunity to be raised in a multi-generational community on faith where on any given Sunday I got to meet a number of folks who showed me what a modern day saint looked like. Now as we know, no church community or faith tradition is perfect and my church was no exception. From its categorical rejection of women in church leadership to a rigid intolerance of anybody who disagreed with its doctrines, to a condemnation and shaming of those in the church who were viewed as morally suspect. The church was a mixed bag of joy and affliction for us who grew up there. But above all, it was a church that took very, very seriously the ministry of evangelization and conversion. And from a very, very young age, even as young as seven or eight, we were expected to not only be converted ourselves, but to tell our friends and neighbors and even strangers about our faith so they might too come to have a Christian faith and not die and end up in hell. I remember an extremely overzealous church leader once warning me As a ninth grader that if i did not take the time to explain the christian faith to the person serving me at the drive-through at mcdonald's well that person may be in fact screaming my name as they fall into the flames of hell so yeah church it's taken me about 25 years of therapy To recover from the guilt and shame heaped upon me by that particular leader, and I'm still not sure I've fully recovered. Now, I, I tell you this not to badmouth my former church, but rather to explain to you that whenever I have a cause to be reading in John 14, when Jesus says that He is the way, the truth, and the life, and no one comes to God except through Him, well, that verse was a core memory verse for me as a youngster in my baptist church and it was a key plank in our evangelization curriculum this was one of the verses we would use as a proof text to remind strangers that look you can see it right here in this verse all other religions are wrong and only jesus is right and you better believe that otherwise you're going to end up in the bad place john 14:6 was a crucial verse for us young baptists to unsheath when you found yourself dealing with one of those pagans who think that all roads lead to God. Not so fast, us Baptists would say, like swordsmen in Ego Montoya fighting the man in black with his left hand, only to switch to his right and to say, John 14, 6, Jesus is the only way to God. on guard. And then we would save their souls and report the salvation to the church so we could earn a pizza party by the end of the year. Because of the way I learned and used this verse, it has lodged itself in a particular place in my heart, and I just can't be rid of it. It's become a permanent exhibit in the art museum of my spiritual past. It's there, and I suspect it will be for the rest of my life. Today, the lectionary puts it right in our path, and it asks the church to hear these words of Jesus again. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me but church what if this verse from john 14 what if this verse is not about evangelization or conversion at all what if these words were spoken by jesus not so that they would be wielded against those on the outside of christian faith what if these words are something deeper something far more rich what are we going to do with these important words from John 14, verse 6. I want to zoom out a moment and take a look at where we are in the gospel of John when we hear these words. Today's verse is found in John chapter 14, but it does not exist in a vacuum. It's part of a section of verses that have come before it and which proceed after it. Today's section of 10 or so verses might be a neat and tidy unit of thought, but they depend on the before verses and the after verses to help us see its context. So where are we? Well, we're broadly in a section of verses in John's gospel that many scholars call Jesus's farewell discourse, a rather long-winded monologue of Jesus broken up by a few dialogical back and forths with his disciples the discourse starts in john chapter 13 and it ends at the end of john chapter 16. it's called the farewell discourse because it takes place on the evening of Jesus' last supper after he had washed the disciples feet and while jesus was sitting and presumably sharing the passover meal with his disciples the night before he was going to be executed jesus knows He is going to die. And he's got to explain a few things to his disciples first. Hence, farewell discourse. So the first thing we need to remember is that today's verse is part of a set of teachings that Jesus is directing, importantly, not to the crowds, not to the pagans or the non-believers, but to his own disciples. Verses like John 14, verse 6 then, are part of the discipleship course, not the evangelism course. This is a part of a set of teachings to help those who were already following Jesus to think more deeply about what on earth that means. I want to come back to this in a little bit, but for now, let us note that we are smack dab in the middle of Jesus talking to his own disciples. Let's get even more contextual. Today's main verse, John 14, 6, is actually an answer to an interjection by one of his disciples. Did you catch this in the reading? If you've got your Bibles open in John 14, you can look at it in verses 4 and 5. Jesus says in verse 4 to his disciples, you know the way to the place I'm going. Cue the disciple Thomas, who jumps in here in verse 5 with a really specific question. Lord, we have no idea where you're going. How can we know the way? Thomas wants to call a timeout here. He's got some concerns. Like first of all, where exactly is Jesus going? I mean, he's just told them he's going to his father's house to prepare a place for them, but like where is that? And more specifically, how is he going to get there? And what does this mean? Thomas leaps in with his question. How do we know the way? And to this question from the floor, Jesus responds with those memorable words. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. But church, I got to tell you, if you think about it, it's not exactly the greatest answer to Thomas's question. I, I mean, it's, it's hardly specific enough. And it doesn't really answer the geographic question Thomas is asking, which is more like, how we, where, where exactly are you going, and how do I get there? Like, come on, Jesus, give us the destination address. We'll punch it into Apple Maps. We'll figure out how we can get there too. Well, should we take a train, or should we walk? Well, we'll figure it out later. All Jesus says as an answer is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And if I were Thomas, I would have received that, and, mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And then i would have thought about it a little bit and then my hand would probably go right back up like i got a couple follow-ups now right Uh, but but jesus moves on and we don't get to know if his answer satisfied thomas or not so the second thing you need to keep in mind about this verse is that it is a direct answer to a specific question that one of jesus's disciples raised. That may or may not have actually answered the question now noticing this back and forth made me scan back to the beginning of this discourse and to the end to see are there any other questions or interjections the disciples raised to Jesus in the middle of this speech I wanted to know were the disciples generally understanding what Jesus was saying or was this confusing to them okay So if you start in John 13 and you go through John 16 and you count the number of times somebody other than Jesus interjects or has something to say, you find not one or two, but actually eight moments where there's at least one or several disciples saying, we really don't understand what you're saying to us. Starting in John chapter 13, Jesus tries to wash Peter's feet. Peter, you'll remember, famously protests and tells Jesus to get lost. You're not going to wash my feet, he says. Jesus has to explain to Peter what's going on. Again in John, again in chapter 13, it's Peter, again, who doesn't understand what Jesus means when he says, somebody is going to betray me. Neither does one of Jesus' other disciples, and Peter and him kind of work together across the room to get Jesus to say a little bit more about that, because we don't get what that means. Judas Iscariot clearly misunderstood Jesus's whole identity and mission because he thought that his people would be better off if Jesus were killed and he decides to betray Jesus in John 13 27 Peter gets worried in verse 36 of chapter 13 when Jesus keeps telling them he's going away and Peter wants to know "Uh, where are you going right and why can't I go with you Peter wonders by the end of chapter 13, Peter is told that his lack of understanding about Jesus is so severe that he is going to deny even knowing who Jesus is three times before the morning comes. In verse 5 of chapter 14, you have Thomas's question to Jesus about where he's going and how to get there. And just a couple verses later, Philip, exasperated, begs Jesus to just, just, look, just show us the Father. Just show us God, Okay? Just give us a glimpse of God. And Peter and Jesus responds in our reading today, "Uh, you know, for real, Philip? Like, you still don't get it? I've been with you all this time. You don't understand? In verse 22 of chapter 14, an unfortunate disciple whose name was also Judas, but not that Judas, well, he wants to know more about how Jesus is going to reveal his true identity. Like, when is Jesus going to make his God identity known to them? Verse uh, 22 of chapter 14. In chapter 16, a whole group of disciples interrupt Jesus in his speaking to ask, "Um, like, what did you mean when you said a little while you'll no longer see me, but then you will see me? And they want to know what Jesus meant by I'm going to the Father and in a little while. And they're so confused that they end up saying, and this is exactly from the Bible, verse 18 of chapter 16, we do not know what you are talking about. Finally, at the end of Jesus' final discourse, the disciples say in exasperation to Jesus, John 16, 30, okay, look, we know that you know all things and no one needs to question you. It's all good. We believe that you came from God. And that's the end of the disciples' learning. Eight times Jesus is interrupted. Eight times the thing is say, that he's saying or explaining seems to go right over the disciples heads i love every single one of these interjections because they remind me that even these disciples three years in after seeing three years of signs and wonders hearing jesus teach having their hearts and minds reworked by the presence of God in their very midst, even here at the end of Discipleship 301, they still don't get Jesus. He's still confusing to them, and the things that he's saying don't seem abundantly clear. Even their final words to Jesus in John 16, we believe you came from God, feels really, really elementary Like a calculus student wrapping up a year of study with the statement, well, we know that 2 plus 2 equals 4. Like Jesus is giving them this rich calculus lesson of discipleship and revelation and his identity as word made flesh and about the Holy Spirit and the best that they can agree on is, well, we believe that you came from God. I love it. But what's the point of all this? And what does this have to do with John 14 verse 6? It's this, church. These words of Jesus are not supposed to be for the church. Spiritual ammunition that is fired upon an unbelieving world. The disciples who first heard Jesus say, I am the way and the truth and the life, were not told to go and say those exact words to the world These words are not part of an evangelism class, they are part of what we might call Jesus' Discipleship 301 class, an advanced course so tough that not one student in its original class was able to pass. These words were given to a group of disciples who Jesus thought had seen enough now to grasp at their meaning. What might it mean for Jesus, their teacher, to be in fact the only revelation of God In this world what might it mean for Jesus their teacher to be in fact the way that leads to God the truth of God incarnate and the life of God experienced even now these words of Jesus are not hasty words they are deep words they are words to repeat and replay and reconsider in every season of our life as Jesus' disciples. They're not words to be used as cudgels or weapons, but rather they're words to be cherished, pondered, meditated upon. For many Christians, past and present, these words of Jesus in 14.6 are a profound celebration that the salvation Jesus accomplished on the cross And by his resurrection is far wider and far deeper and far more grand than we could have possibly imagined. For by his dying and rising, he has become the way, the truth, and the life, and has made it so that everyone in every place now has access to God, whether they believe it or not, whether they claim Christian faith or not, whether they love God or not. Salvation has come. It is finished. This past week, I was traveling abroad for six days with my brother-in-law in Germany, and as I hurried to catch my train in Cologne, Germany, back to our hostel in Heidelberg, I found myself walking past a man standing by platform nine, singing as loud as he could, first in German, which I didn't understand, but then in English, which I did. Jesus died for us. We are going to see the king. Jesus died for us we are going to see the king jesus died for us we are going to see the king hallelujah hallelujah we're going to see the king and there At Platform 9, amid the swirling tapestry of culture and language and human experience, as hundreds were rushing to and fro to board trains to find places all across Germany, I found myself stunned anew by what Jesus may have meant in John 14, verse 6. Maybe Jesus was saying that his death and resurrection would do what nothing else in this world could accomplish. Maybe he was saying that by his work alone, he would be able to redeem the whole universe from its captivity to sin and death, whether we care about it or not, whether we stop to listen to the man singing or not, whether we believe it or not, it matters. Little, the work of salvation has been done, and importantly, it has not been done by us. And one day, One day we will find that we too are going to see the king. But here's the good news to us today. We do not have to have all of our answers down pat and submitted today. Discipleship 301 stretches out for the rest of our life. Following Jesus is a lifelong journey through the seasons of life, and I am encouraged and heartened that the first disciples of Jesus, who had front row seats to his glory who ate bread multiplied from a couple of loaves and who saw storms stilled and water turned into wine and who saw the blind given their sight and the dead raised to new life, if they can hear these words of Jesus and not quite get it, well, that is gospel good news to me for surely I do not always understand these words. Maybe the Christian faith is not about getting it or understanding it, but rather sitting with it, stewing upon it, Pondering it, inquiring about it, wrestling with it. Maybe Christian faith is ultimately about choosing to follow Jesus even when we aren't sure what it all means all the time. In the closing story of the Gospel of John, after Jesus had been raised from the dead, the disciple Peter is walking with Jesus on a beach. And at one point, Peter turns around and he points out another disciple who's following after them. And he wonders, what's going to happen to this guy after Jesus? jesus is gone and jesus's response is this what does that matter here's what does matter peter you follow me church in this season of easter let us hear the words of jesus and let us ponder them let us meditate upon them let us rejoice for them let us not rush to preach them and demand conversion as a result but let us let them ferment within our souls And let us choose to follow Christ, whether we have figured out all these mysteries or not, whether we have all the answers to all the questions, or whether we know enough to pass the discipleship 301 exam. And might we find in that, that our soul is stirred up again with wonder to consider how, in fact, Jesus is the way to God, how he is the truth of God, and how he is the life in God made flesh before our very eyes. I speak to you in the name of this God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, let the Church of Jesus Christ say, Amen. Thanks for listening this week. The First Presbyterian Church of Flint is an historic downtown congregation proudly part of the Presbyterian Church USA, the largest Presbyterian denomination in the United States. You can learn more about us at fpcf.org. You can check out our weekly live stream broadcasts on our channel on YouTube. But better yet, You can stop by any Sunday at 10.30 a.m. to worship with us. We would love to welcome you and your family to worship. Have a great week.